Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where our purpose is to learn more about how effective charities and individuals achieve social change or social impact. I'm your host, Alex Blake, and this podcast is brought to you by Akida Consulting, where I help charities to develop strategies, secure funding, and navigate a range of challenges and opportunities. If you listen to the podcast, I'd love to hear what you think. You can either leave a review on Spotify, Apple, etc., or to share critical feedback, suggest future guests or topics to cover. You can either tweet at alexblake underscore k-e-d-a, drop me an email at hello at kedaconsulting.co.uk, or find me on LinkedIn. For details on all episodes with notes and links to resources, head to our website kedaconsulting.co.uk. I'm joined today by Sufina Ahmed, who has been director of the John Elliman Foundation since January 2020. Safina started her career in service delivery and business development roles for charities working with adults with learning disabilities and older people. She then moved into grant making strategy and policy roles at National Lottery Community Fund and City Bridge Trust and also worked in corporate strategy and performance at the City of London Corporation. Safina also holds trusteeships with Just for Kids Law, We Belong, The Charter House and the Association of Charitable Foundations. Safina is an honorary fellow of the Chartered Institute of Fundraising, having chaired their expert panel on equality, diversity and inclusion. And she was awarded an MBE for charitable services in 2020. Safina also has an executive MBA from Warwick Business School. Welcome to the podcast, Safina. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Very happy to be here. So thank you so much for the invite. I really appreciate it. No problem. Looking forward to talking about fairly wide ranging topics, I think. We'll see how we get on. I'll try and thread them together one way or another. Rather you than me. We'll we'll manage it, I'm sure. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So I wanted to start with sort of beginning of your career, really. So as I was digging around on your LinkedIn profile, I saw you did a degree in genetics and biology. Mm -hmm. And then your, your first first sort of roles were started off as a support worker for people with learning disabilities. So I was just curious about like the degree subject and then moving into that sort of support worker role and then developing your career in the sector. Like what, what was the thought process, if any, or were you planning to do one thing and then changed? Um, No, that's an interesting question. And it's something that does come up from time to time. So I'm glad you've raised it. So I'm very much a generalist, I would say. I was very fortunate at school that I was able to enjoy and do well in a range of subjects from languages to humanities to the sciences and uh, so on and so forth. So I think I did get put onto the science track at school. I did biology, chemistry and uh, French as my A-levels. And so it. I don't know that careers advice was all that good or helpful and so I just did a science degree it also Mm. felt like an easier option it was something that felt more familiar to my family as well and so it just felt like the obvious choice I knew that I wanted to leave home for university and that was kind of the rationale behind uh, the university choices that I made I went to Sheffield because I'd grown up in a village. I'd gone to a school in another village. I thought that Sheffield was a good starter city. I had a really good programme for the degree that I chose. And, you know, as a generalist, I think you do enjoy a lot of different things. And it's not that you feel like anything that you turn your hand to is a huge kind of 
burden or wrench so I, I felt passionate about the degree that I did but I knew that it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do for the rest of my life I spent time in my third year in a lab which is kind of where a lot of people in that kind of degree they go on to do lab work and research and realize that that really wasn't for me it didn't suit me but actually throughout my school career and my whole time at university I'd spent a lot of time working on charitable causes doing a lot of volunteering I was part of the welfare sabbatical officers uh, team in terms of he, he had a committee that I chaired lots and lots of different kind of voluntary opportunities that I so enjoyed and the same was true when I was at school that I, I kind of instinctively or perhaps maybe not that instinctively thought that a, a career in the charity sector would be something that I would really enjoy and then the reason I went into health and social care so I worked for a not-for-profit supporting people with learning disabilities is because in a very vague way it still felt like it was a nod to what I had been learning about in terms of genetics in particular mm -hmm. and so it felt like it was still very very tangentially linked to my science background and degree and I think with university and doing degrees at the time when I was doing that so I was graduated in 2009 at that point it was still about the way in which degrees teach you lots of wider skills that support you in your career and in your professional life. So even though it wasn't directly linked or I had realized that I wouldn't necessarily be using my degree directly in my career, I didn't feel like it was a waste by any means. So I, you know, I didn't regret any of the decisions I made. I had a really good time at university and learned loads and it hasn't stopped me or prevented me from having the career that I wanted. Although I have to be honest that if you told me that this would be my career five or seven years ago, I wouldn't have known it. It's kind of revealed itself to me <laughs> over time. Uh -huh. Cool. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it's it's maybe my ignorance slightly, but when I see university topics that sound quite sort of specialist, I imagine it's like, I don't know, I always just think of like science and maths and stuff as being really kind of if you if that's what you're into then you're kind of you if you if you you know doing that at that kind of level yeah and yeah that you'd go in something like that but and I was definitely surrounded I was surrounded by people who were very into it and I think that in itself revealed to me a lot as well but <laughs> that you weren't <laughs> in that way yeah or to that extent yeah absolutely so you'd learn a lot from the people around you I have a friend from my course who hasn't he, he pursued it further than I did in terms of like a master's and so on and so forth but he also works in the charity sector now too so I think there's just an element of I, I think it is different now with like the amount that people spend on university degrees versus how much I was spending that there is something about the kind of broader aspects of what you learn at university that can serve you really well in any career that you choose to pursue and and I got a lot from the um, experience. But yeah, if I had my time again, I would do it about, I would pursue a degree in something I was really passionate about. And it would probably be to do with like social policy and law and things like that. But I was on the science track and that was the advice I was given. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one about the sort of cost and value of degrees, isn't it, as well? Because I think I'm going completely off track what I'd planned to talk about. But um, like when I think about my kids going to uni, I think like mm -hmm. when I went, uh, I was similar in that I didn't have a 
yeah, in some ways similar. So I chose business management mm. with the view that I didn't really know what I wanted to do career-wise. Mm. And that felt like a really useful kind of broad subject to have to then go yeah. on and do whatever. Um, but yeah, when I think about like whether if my kids, like if they're not clear on what their career path would be, or if they're not like, you know, really kind of academically wanting to do something specific, mm. uh, then whether it's worth kind of at 18 thinking, right, I'll just go and get a degree and then work out what I want to do afterwards when it costs so much more now and you end up with so much more debt afterwards. But as you guess, I think you do learn, you do learn a lot more than just the academic side from doing it, but then you learn a lot more at work as well, don't you? So Yeah, but I do think learning at that academic level can be really, really inspiring and powerful too. So I think if, if it's possible to have the options and, and to keep those options open, then I think it's worth doing. So, mm. yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. And, and like thinking on the flip side of the like the sort of campaigns we see in the sector around like um, graduate, non-graduates being welcome and, you know, taking degrees off of person specs and things. It's, yeah, it's thinking about what, because I suppose one of my thoughts was that you need to have a degree to reach mm. a certain level like you'd you know you'd get to a point where you wanted to go for management positions and you wouldn't be able to without a degree and so if that isn't the case anymore then absolutely that would kind of influence your thinking as well to some extent I think yeah and I fully support that I do think that um it is about making things more inclusive and I do think that the work that non-graduates welcome and and similar initiatives and campaigns are vital and the more that we all of us can do to remove the requirement for degrees in any charity sector role, uh, the better it will be ultimately. And that's something that we are doing at John Elliman Foundation, which is great. My next question is going to continue on the education theme, um, oddly enough, um, but also start to bring in the themes of kind of strategy and leadership as well, I think, potentially. So, uh, yeah, I was just wanting to ask about the executive MBA you did at Warwick fairly recently. Yeah, quite recently, I think you completed it. Yes, yeah, graduated in July this year, so 2020. Yeah, so really, really recently. So, yeah, it's just kind of how you found that experience how and how you think that's going to help in your work, if that was the kind of motivation behind doing it. Yeah, I'm just always interested in like how people kind of think about that sort of MBA experience and using it in the sector. So I can definitely show you my working, how it how it came to be. So I was in a very fortunate position that when I got offered the role for director of John Elliman Foundation, they... As part of the offer, they asked me, would I have any interest in pursuing further education in the form of a master's? And Alex, that's not the kind of thing that you expect to hear ever in a job offer, and particularly not in the charity sector. It's not something I'd ever been spoken to about. And I was quite cognizant of the fact that I just was finishing a role where I had managed to secure some funding to go on a four-day course which was meant to be like a mini deep dive into strategy and leadership. And I secured funding, which meant that it would be free. But my boss at the time had said, no, because we can't spare you from a capacity point of view. So I felt like I was in this real kind of, the situation couldn't be more different. Here I am, someone saying, you know, have you thought about that kind of pursuing a master's? 
Um, they suggested the obvious choice, which was around doing the Bayes Business School voluntary sector management course or the philanthropy version of that course. And I kind of thought, well, that just kind of confirms that my career to date has happened. It's all things that I've done before that I'm now doing a master's to confirm I've done them. And obviously, there's a lot more that you get from an academic perspective. So I don't want to belittle it. And I thought, you know, a master's will always be tough going. It'll be a lot of time and energy. But I wasn't sure that it was the best thing to do to then use that time and energy on things that were very much of my sector and what I felt I knew already. And so I was chatting to a friend who mentioned the idea of an MBA. And I raised the idea of an MBA with my then chair and he was very supportive and he could understand my perspective of wanting to pursue a master's in something that was much more broad and out with my usual operating environments because my career background is primarily the charity sector and the public sector. And I did want to be around people that didn't necessarily think like me um, or operate like me I wanted to be exposed to that and challenged by it I had thought about maybe delaying the masters by a year getting settled into my new role and then starting but I thought that that didn't make much sense because in a year's time I'd never find the time to start it whereas if you start a new role you've got you know a quote-unquote blank sheet of paper to an extent and so I thought I'd be able to fit it in but I did grapple with what was really the motivation for doing it and for me it was about learning I have I'm naturally quite a curious person I think the reason I enjoy being a generalist is because I get to learn about lots and lots of different things that interest me and impact me and others and so that was one big motivator to just the opportunity to do it which meant that it wasn't going to result in the entire cost being borne by me. Warwick has a really good scholarship program uh, as well. And the third element was just the fact that if I'm really, really honest, and it's something that I've realised more so this year, is that I have been very fortunate in that I've progressed really well in my career and been able to take on new opportunities at new levels of seniority But the MBA offers me scaffolding, if you like, or a safety net is another way of looking at it, where it underpins that practical experience, that professional experience with the academic expertise and knowledge, which I hope then sustains my career over the much longer term. And then I was very intrigued by the fact that it was an opportunity to learn about some of the things that coming back to the point that I did a genetics degree. I'm obviously very passionate about my career. I've done a lot of things which have been in the strategy, leadership, policy space. So it was nice to be able to dedicate time to just learn about that. And I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that element of it, just being able to learn about the things that I've been doing professionally in my career and learn about all the ways in which I could be doing those better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to ask you, we're going to come back to the kind of strategy and leadership topics in a minute. But you mentioned there around how you've been fortunate to kind of progress in your career and kind of take those steps forward. So I'd be interested to kind of explore that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I suppose, what's the question? It's partly around like how how that's happened in practice like whether to what extent you had 
any kind of career plan or whether it was kind of more something came up and you went for it and it was more by chance so that would be quite interesting so as you say you have kind of progressed at upwards and, and very quickly like you mentioned you only graduated in what 2009 and you've had some really interesting and, and quite senior roles in impressive organizations that I, I would imagine it, it's kind of quite a competitive process to get into those roles and also just like I suppose a follow-up question to that will be like a, a bit around kind of how you structure your time to kind of fit in as much as you do because I know on the back of your sort of main role and doing the MBA, you've got like four trusteeships <laughs> for one thing. So yeah, sorry, that's a, a bit of a kind of mouthful of a question. But yeah, first part's just around that kind of career progress. And then the second part's maybe just about kind of managing time and and not just time, but I suppose like energy levels and stuff is, as well as something that I'm always really interested in how people manage to kind of maintain their energy or manage it and, you know. Perfect. Can do. Leave it with me, Alex. If there's something I don't cover, I'm sure you can remind me. So in terms of my career, I did fall into health and social care and I fell into learning disabilities. I cannot sit here and say that I knew lots and lots about either of those things before I joined my you know, first not-for-profit outside of university. However, I'd been volunteering, I'd been kind of close in different ways to the charity sector before then. So I felt passionate about it and, and committed to it in, in some ways already. And then in health and social care, there is a kind of career trajectory that's marked out for you. And it's you become a support worker, senior support worker, team manager, etc. You can do they were MBQs when I first joined the sector and they later became QCF. So you can do your level three, your level five. So you know, it wasn't a career that necessarily friends or family had, but the organisations I was in meant that I could see what the trajectory was because you could see the organogram basically. And then I moved from Sheffield to London and went, carried on in health and social care because I still felt very passionate about it and committed to it as much as I'd fallen into it, I'd fallen in love with it too. And I felt really sure that this was something that I was meant to be doing and really wanted to do a good job in it and I worked in older people services and set something up from scratch which was an extra care sheltered housing scheme and onboarding and, and bringing people to live in it was a real learning experience and something that I took so much from and I had wanted to go back into learning disabilities proper though because I was missing that and and then that was why I moved back into learning disabilities with a uh, mainly London-based provider, which was part of a group. So I thought that was going to be my career. And then I became a CQC registered manager. So I did a qualification that allowed me to do that. And I had this moment where I just thought, I'm not really sure why I've taken on this level of responsibility. And I was working really hard. I, I was often brought in to do kind of service transformation and how to correct or improve things. I was quite good at looking at something as a whole, figuring out where the issues were, how to break it down, improve things, bring people with me, and so on and so forth. And I just thought, I'm not really sure that all of this effort and energy that gets put into this is leading to outcomes that go beyond this specific service or this specific moment even and as much as I still felt very passionate com and committed I could just 
perceive really in the future that there'd be this moment where I was completely unhappy and burnt out or burned by the roles that I was doing and the work that I was doing. And so I knew then that rather than get to that point, I needed to be proactive in figuring out what I wanted to do. And I really loved management and delivering services, designing services, even some business development kind of fundraising work. I I got lots of experience in a very short space of time. So I'll never regret that part of my career and I'll always honour it and cherish it in different ways. But then I happened upon an advert that the big lottery fund as it was then it's now the National Lottery Community Fund, had for roles, which was around policy and learning manager. And to me, I thought that policy was only done by people who'd done the right degrees, who'd had the right roles, had worked in government, whatever it was. So I didn't think, oftentimes I'd seen roles like this and I'd just been like, no, don't have that, don't have that, don't have that. I won't apply. But this role was written differently. And I thought, actually, I've got lots of very practical transferable experience here so I need to go for it and at that time I was also thinking of moving into commissioning roles so I was applying quite successfully for commissioning officer roles in different local authorities so I knew I wanted to move away from the kind of work I had been doing into this more strategic change many things not just the moment type of issue and situation I was finding myself in And I was just very fortunate that when the lottery was recruiting to policy and learning managers, they were really keen to find people who had direct experience of working in charities too, as well as lots of other experiences that I had and and, um, skills that I had. And as soon as I arrived at the lottery, I was like, this, this is what I've been looking for. And I was so pleased. And I got to cover lots of different things. I was able to lead on different policy areas. There was It was a role where I felt like I had a lot of agency and autonomy. It was great to be part of a big community of like-minded, passionate people. And I thought, that's it. I'll, I'll be at the lottery forever now. So that's easy. I don't have to think about these things because, again, I'll come back to that point that it's not like I've got friends and family necessarily doing the same thing I mean nowadays I have more friends doing similar things just because of the nature of work and your working life meaning that you make friends but at that point not not so much and so (laughs) I just thought great I'm happy here it's all fine and then I was I, I think I've been fortunate that people have sometimes seen some of my skills and experience and made the effort and the time to sit with me and say what are you actually looking to do what are you wanting from your career and have helped me think through that so I've had two brilliant line managers at the lottery who were very thoughtful in how they helped me think about my future career I had someone that I was so the reason I got the secondment was because someone had like spotted something in me and thought okay I want to do I was uh, doing a secondment at, it was City Bridge Trust then, although it's now Bridge House Estates. And David Farnsworth, who's now the managing director of Bridge House Estates, knew that he wanted to do a different strategy process than he'd trusted ever run before. And so he thought about this idea of a secondment. He opened it out to lottery staff and his own staff. I applied and I was successful. But, you know, it just takes people noticing you and making that effort and energy and I hope that I do that now and then while I was at the City Bridge Trust on my secondment 
Uh, I had some career coaching, which David agreed to as part of the budget that I was responsible for. So another investment that was made in me. And it just made me see what I wanted from my career. And I hope now that's what I've pursued. And one of the things that I had thought about was becoming a director of a charitable trust or foundation, which happened sooner than I anticipated. And I think that it is because of those people that have noticed, taken an interest, people who've invested, i.e. through the career coaching, or even those kind of different qualifications I've had. So doing an advanced diploma and grant funding, doing the QCFs, and just the fact that I've been lucky enough to be in interesting roles that have allowed me to experience lots of different things. And I've worked in brilliant organisations and institutions that I don't think it's a fully mapped out and designed career path but it's a career path that has been about what is it that I feel I can meaningfully contribute and deliver well as well as what are the things that interest me and how the two coalesce and it's also been about noticing noticing what how I'm feeling now and how I might be feeling in the future and then there is an element of sometimes when you don't know that it's not meant to be for you because you haven't quite done the right degree or whatever it might be, that can be an advantage because you just kind of go for it. So when I went for the role, I didn't go back to the lottery. I went for a role at the City of London Corporation because I was really keen at that point to not just have a career that was solely in the charity sector. I felt that there was a kind of undermining that could go on because you'd only worked in the charity sector and I wanted to work in a role that was about the public, private and charitable sectors. But, you know, I hadn't worked in a local authority before Mm -hmm. and which the City of London Corporation is a part local authority. And that was like a big thing that people couldn't believe I had this kind of fairly senior role and had never worked in a local authority. So there's just an element of, if I'd known that, I might not have applied, but sometimes fact that you don't know these things helps so yeah I think that's kind of what's happened with my career progress and then the the role at element there was just no way once I heard about it that I couldn't apply because it felt like such an alignment of my personal ambitions and interests as well as my professional ambitions and interests so the roles don't come up often and you have to go for them and as much as I thought oh gosh it's early I, I was 31 when I got offered the role I felt really confident that I could do the role. And I think that's the main thing. You don't want to waste people's time or your own. So that's something on the career progression, quite a lot there, sorry, Alex, but on structuring my time and energy levels. So with energy levels, I will just say that as much as I do pack in a lot to my time, be it the MBA, which is now finished, or the trusteeships, or just the roles that I do, I think the energy side of it is managed by the simple fact that I really care about all of the things that I'm doing. I'm doing them for reasons that are about what I feel I can contribute and what I also feel I can gain from them because a lot of my trusteeship roles are in parts of the sector that I haven't necessarily worked in directly, but they're all things I care about and are interested in. So I gain a lot from it and I hope that those charities gain a lot from it too in terms of my experience and expertise in terms of structuring my time I'm very diligent about that um so I you know a lot of the kind of time management exercises that I'm sure many people use but from a work perspective I have everything planned out from a 
on the daily, the weekly, every two months. And I've got a rough plan of the entire year too. And good at kind of saying, well, I need to write board papers at this point, or my diary is kind of managed in a way that means that I can be clear about making sure I do genuinely have enough time to do the things that I need to do. And then with my trustee roles, because I've got the benefit of being able to manage my time in work, I have two trustee roles that have meetings during the day and two that are in the evenings. And obviously with the ones that are during the day, I just manage that so that I make that time back up. I also always know when my papers will be coming and I'll make sure that, okay, I've got that weekend to do some reading or the evening or whatever it might be. So I think a lot of it just comes to good, really good, thorough forward planning and being realistic with myself about what I can and can't do. I've had the benefit of being in many trustee roles and now running my own board. I feel like I've got much, much better at reading papers and not kind of agonizing over the bits of the papers that I don't understand because you're recognizing that you're all there for different reasons. So there's always going to be someone else on the board who can speak to something that you might feel less confident about. And obviously, if you notice that none of you can speak as confidently to that, then you need to talk to your chair and um, senior team about filling those skills gaps. But yeah, I think ultimately, because they're all things that I really care about, I find that the energy and the time come easily. And where there are difficulties, I think I'll know in advance. It never comes as a huge surprise that I might be finding it difficult to find the time to do as much as I would like to. And then I can plan accordingly. And over time, I think I've got a little bit better at saying no or being clear about what I'm saying yes to and why is perhaps a better way of looking at it. And then I also recognise the fortunate position that I'm in, that I don't have childcare or other caring responsibilities that mean that I can juggle my time really flexibly. I think that leads us quite nicely onto another question that I wanted to ask about, which is about leadership at board level in the sector, how you've seen that working well and, and your thoughts around maybe how boards can be I was going to say more effective, but how how boards can be effective, how the charity governance structure can be effective. Because I think I've seen lots of cases where it's not, where, you know, where that structure isn't working well or just the makeup of the board isn't really serving the charity well for one reason or another. Uh, So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that from your experience. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I'm by no means a charity governance expert. But what I would say is that for me, I think that the boards that work best are the boards that are good at self-reflection and analysis. And those two things mean that they can notice what they're doing well and what they're not doing so well and where there are opportunities or gaps that need to be acted upon so I do think there is something about that kind of self-reflection self-analysis point I do think that there is something about how boards and the teams that serve those boards come together and work together and whether it feels like it's a one-way or a two-way relationship or you know whether there is a genuine kind of dialogue and respect that exists between those groups and my other bugbear really with boards is around knowing 
that your role is to be strategic and not operational. And I think that that can inevitably sometimes will be pulled into the operational. We're supporting with appointments. We might be supporting with specific kind of policies or pieces that are operational matters at the end of the day. But we must work as trustees to always be acting in the strategic because we are just not close enough to the work to know what to do at an operational level and the moment that we think we do is the moment that we are failing in in being a good trustee I think that sometimes as well with the kind of sometimes overwhelm or risk aversion can kick in with boards where we think that we have so much responsibility and so much duty which we absolutely do we we clearly have both of those things but I think we can misunderstand them and make that a reason to do less or to go more slowly Um, and that might not be an appropriate course of action I think sometimes people's fear of the responsibility that they take on as a trustee or even the perception of that responsibility is not the same as the reality of that responsibility so I think there is something about trustees really being supported to understand exactly and fully what their governance duties are and then be supported by their fellow board members and others to to fulfill those to act on those and the others obviously being the staff members um I must say I think having now the responsibility of of working directly to a board and and making sure that my board is completely supported in fulfilling its duties I hope that's made me a better trustee actually because I think that it has really made much clearer for me some of the points that I've just raised because you get to see it from both sides in a way that you know I had experiences from previous roles where I'd seen it slightly from both sides but I'd not been the director or or chief executive and so I hadn't seen it fully from both sides so I think having that perspective has made a huge difference I do think I don't know if this was part of the question or if I'm just going off on a tangent now Alex but I do think that boards that don't act on or speak to issues around diversity, equity and inclusion, the reason for the charity and whether it's right to exist. And those really big strategic questions are boards that really are not fulfilling their duties as robustly as they could be. I think sometimes people think it's we turn out the annual report accounts, we sign off the management accounts, we recruit a CEO or a new chair if that's what we need. And Mm. it's all very practical things. But I think the best boards are the ones that really speak to these much more difficult and ingrained matters like diversity, equity and inclusion, whether we have a right to exist the organization strategy and so on and so forth but obviously recognizing that we shouldn't be doing that in isolation we need to be thinking about that as in partnership with the staff that are in the charity and the people who benefit and work with and alongside the charity yeah i think there are a few things that aren't and likewise i'm not a governance expert so i probably can't articulate perfectly the issues that i've kind of seen or perceived but I think there were a few things you've picked up on there. There's the, it's like getting the the sort of behaviours right in terms of that sort of reflection and and so on. Getting the process right mm-hmm. in terms of 
how you're actually spending your time together because obviously it's fairly limited the amount of time that trustee board of boards of trustees spend together and often i suppose the the cases of poor practice are where you see like a a far too busy agenda of stuff on on there and lots of that might be updating which should just be in the papers mm. and then the meeting for discussion so there's there's that kind of thing and then it's the the makeup of the board who's who's actually on it and i think absolutely agree with your point about having that experience of being on both sides of that kind of relationship of the executive and the non-executive you would mm. you would hope that there would be a number of trustees with that sort of experience and i suppose if you think about when i think about who would you want to have on your board mm-hmm. you would want people that have experience of running a charity certainly experience of working in a charity you would want people with experience of the issues that your charity is addressing so that lived experience and then you would want some specialist experience in key areas you might whatever's relevant to your organization might be needs around hr legal fundraising all of those kinds of things you might want some of that kind of specialist experience and i think too often those things just aren't on the board particularly the experience of running and working in charities and the lived experience there's Mm. it often tends to be more on the side of an hr expert a legal expert, an accountant, and often people that that's what they do in their day job, but they don't know it in the charity sector context. So that's more often the makeup of boards that I see. And then often the yeah. often the process and the behaviours as well are, are not perfect, but then that's the, that's the obvious thing, isn't it, that you can look at who's on the board and you think, you know, do they really have the right experience? to support the executive team and and to work in the right way to to help the charity yeah and I think that's a real shame and I've definitely been lucky I think I've been on boards which are more of that kind of makeup that you just described and I'd say more so now I've got not fully but board experience where it's about people who really do know of what they speak from a kind of skills and experience perspective and that is so much more energizing and effective ultimately I do think that there is always a benefit to people with broader perspectives I'm nothing against that in principle but I think when you do have that broader perspective or you bring something that's out with the norm on your board then it's not for you to be that or for those people to be that kind of like oh we look askance and we're disruptors it's actually Yes, you might disrupt some of our thinking with new ideas and so on and so forth, but it's also on you to be doing the work to really understand the culture and community that you are and the ecosystem that you're entering into. It's not for you to stay on the outside of it looking at us thinking, oh, how could it be better or whatever it might be. I do think there's an element of I think there's benefits to having diverse perspectives but recognising when you are one of those kind of diverse perspectives that there is a body of work for you to do around learning more about what it is that you are now part of. Yeah, and I think there's definitely a a sort of gap in terms of the sort of trustee training development, I suppose. I I know there's stuff that exists, but I suppose as 
like generally speaking, I don't think it's a norm for, you know, if you get your first trustee role to necessarily then yeah. for there to be something. I mean, there's the kind of charity commission guidance, which is pretty hard going typically for you if you're just given a bunch of documents and said here's your responsibilities have a look through that stuff but I think what what would be really helpful is if there was something that articulates some of that stuff that you've talked about here here is what a really great board looks like this is as a trustee you've got these responsibilities yes but this is what mm -hmm. should be happening at the meetings and in between meetings and this is what we want you to contribute yeah which I suppose is partly to the the chair and chief exec to get across to new trustees but also i suppose at, at like a sector-wide level to have something that's a kind of a resource to point all new trustees to and to find that balance of making it so it's something people can engage with rather mm -hmm. than it being like okay you take on this responsibility this trustee role and then it's like okay and here's two days of training you've got to do and it's like mm -hmm. is that realistic that that's then going to be a barrier to people being able to kind of take on those roles as well so there's a balance there I think in terms of what you can ask of people yeah listen but there is something about induction isn't there whether or not we I'm sure we can all speak to places where we've had really thorough effective inductions as trustees and places where we haven't and I do think there is something about it is the responsibility of the organization on boarding trustees to make sure that those resources, as you say, that are sector-wide are made use of, but also that you induct new trustees into the way the board works at your organization. So yeah, sure we could talk about this all day though. It's a very interesting topic. So I think what we'll move on to next is philanthropy and grant making. So the day job for you essentially. And I know there's been increased discussion in the last couple of years about the ethics of where the money has come from in terms of some of those kind of historic foundations. We've seen it's probably some examples around that. Also then how it's being invested today and also other issues around power, accountability, transparency and equity. So could you speak to that in whatever way makes sense to you, perhaps whether there's a sort of practical aspect to that as well in terms, rather than just a sort of academic view but more of a sort of practical what are the actions that we can take in the present and the future as as philanthropists as foundations no and to be honest I think the easiest way I could speak to something this com complex really is by talking about John Elliman Foundation's strategy um so John Elliman Foundation got its new strategy this year in March 2022. We hadn't really had a strategy before then. Um, it had kind of been different things in different places. And sometimes we kind of thought the funding guidelines were our strategy, which was not the case at all. There are funding guidelines. So we spent um, a good deal of time working through what our strategy should be. We did lots of what I would call kind of prototyping and testing and learning in my first kind of two years at the foundation to figure out what the art of the possible is for us. We're a team of, at that point we were 5.8 and we're now moving to a structure where we'll be a team of seven. And so there is only so much you can do on your own. 
and it's about also understanding and, and learning alongside and with the community that you're part of and that's not just the philanthropic community your kind of stakeholder base is is much broader than that when you're a grant maker so our strategy is about trying to do well deliver our aim which is to advance well-being for people society and the natural world using 100% of our assets so one of the things that we've really kind of shifted our perspective on much more in the last nearly three years now is around the fact that our grant making is absolutely our key kind of service and what we do and where a lot of our impact comes from but we need to use 100% of our assets and that includes our endowment and how that is invested in order to deliver our aim so our strategy breaks down into four pillars essentially and the first is around our funding offer which you should expect for a grant maker if we weren't talking about our funding something's gone awry and it's about not just making sure the grants go out each day um, and in each grant making cycle, but it's about making sure that the way in which we do that is effective and how we make sure that we are doing all that we can to be a grant maker or a funder that delivers the best kind of practice and quality that is available. And so that is about signing up to pledges, making sure that we are part of different communities and learning groups that allow us to be an effective grant maker and also seeking feedback, of course, which we do formally through a third party um, as well as informally and on an ongoing basis. So that's our kind of first pillar. Our second pillar is our investment policy. And that is where we do have to grapple with, you know, the way in which the money is being invested we are in what are called ESG funds, so they are taking into account environment, social and governance factors. But within that, you can see contradictions and issues where you're thinking, OK, we might be supporting work through our funding categories of art, social action and environment that are to do with the climate and nature crises. And then find that some of the investments that we make might be exacerbating the climate and nature crises and the same is true of, of lots of places where we might be funding that are then being contradicted if you will through the investment decisions we make so we've shifted our kind of position we have an investment policy that is absolutely about financial return because that's where we get our income that's how we can make our grants but it's also much more now about how we can ensure that the way in which we invest is creating a net positive benefit ultimately that will take a lot of time even though we we are in ESG funds there's a lot of engagement work that we're doing with our fund managers and they're doing on our behalf with companies which is to do with trying to challenge some of those poorer practices that we feel are not conducive to our overarching aim of advancing well-being for people, society and the natural world. Um, but, you know, we're trying to be very public facing about the journey that we're on with our investing. So that's why the investment policy is publicly available. But we also uh, write about it on our website fairly regularly. We talk about it externally regularly. We know that we're not doing everything that we can do, but we're trying to get to a position where we're resourced to do much more and better around our investing and be a much more engaged um, asset holder who can really push for 
a change in some of the ways in which our um, investments are made. And it also means that we might start to, you know, we're in equities primarily, but we might start to diversify into impact investing, for example. We might change some of our fund managers if we feel that there are better fund managers out there who get the kind of ethics and environmental standards that we are pursuing. The third pillar is our work with others. So it's about how we can ensure we're a collaborative, outward-facing funder who is in community and dialogue with others and trying to if there if others are doing some of the things that we're doing we'll probably go further faster together and also we want to make sure that there is a sense of people can come to us with their ideas be that grant holders applicants other funders and see us as a credible partner for them and then the final pillar is called our commitment to accountability and it speaks to some of the points you've made about the ethics of philanthropy like our right to exist and how so under our commitment to our accountability that's where we have matters relating to how we demonstrate the difference that we make or the impact that we're having um how we are transparent um how we commit to effectiveness in our work, how we commit to diversity, equity and inclusion, how we commit to things like environmental sustainability. And a lot of these things like on environmental sustainability and diversity, equity and inclusion, these have now become public facing policies so that others can hold us to account and not just ourselves. Um, and we also are pursuing what we call our history project, where we have over the years, but specifically in the last year, we commissioned a team of researchers to do a very deep dive into our history by finding any archival or secondary material that could tell us more about our founder, Sir John Elliman II. Um, so our founder, his father, Sir John Elliman I, and his sister, Briar, uh, or Annie Winifred Elliman, and learn more about the people from which we we derive our wealth, but also find out more about where the money comes from. So we know on the surface that it was made in the last century, primarily through shipping, but also some holdings to do with breweries, newspapers, and other businesses. But it's about bringing that to life and, and getting more detail around that. And the output of this phase of the history project, because previous phases that predate me were to do with like oral history and speaking to people that remembered our founder and also I should mention his wife Esther Elliman who who did kind of act on this trust once once our founder passed away and so she's very much part of our kind of operational history too so yeah I think history and understanding where you have come from understanding your through line is important to determine who you are now and who you will be in the future and also to notice the things that have been kind of embedded into your founding principles that perhaps are not fit for purpose or don't serve you in the same way so we will be publishing the kind of output of this phase of the history project in spring the next year and we're very happy and, and committed to doing that and just look forward to being in community with others and, and hearing their reflections and the other thing that's kind of in, under consideration in our strategy and will be resolved as part of this strategy cycle, which goes from 22 to 25, is about our time horizon. So in perpetuity is a kind of standard model that trusts and foundations tend to use. And, and we're, we're looking at that, whether that's the right model for, for us. And we kind of 
toyed with this over the years and we kind of said oh we're not in perpetuity but we're kind of acting like we were and then some people thought we weren't and some people thought we were and we're just trying to build more clarity around these things so I hope and obviously at the risk of sounding arrogant but I hope that our strategy is a way in which we have reflected on all of the things that you you raised in your question yeah I think you have and uh, you've obviously kind of done that thinking and developed these principles put that into the strategy and, and put that out into the world and as you say you've shared those policies around equity and things like that are you doing anything to try and obviously you you believe this is like the right way to do things or you know a, a good way a best way to do things are you doing anything to influence others at all in in this regard whether that's both other funders but also maybe grantees as well yes i think so and trying to do from trying to do so from a place of kind of mutual respect and and humility because we're improving things we are by no means saying that we are experts and have improved things i think that's a really important point to say off the bat so i think in one way the the simplest way we're doing it is we are just being very transparent about what we're doing we're sharing it's all on our website it's there for people to chat to us about or make use of in their own organizations and so on and so forth the other way in which we're doing things is by joining different groups and collaborations in the sector and um, we have to be discerning about those because obviously there are seven staff and there's only limited amount of time and there's lots to be getting on with but we have joined different kind of funder groups um, or stakeholder groups to do with um, grant making, investing, and and certainly to do with um, how we can demonstrate the difference that we make. We've been quite active members of things like, for example, the work that was done on a DEI data standard for um, collecting data in the grant making sector. But in terms of what we do with our grant holders and applicants, again, I hope by just working with transparency and showing them what we're doing, that that shows them who they're potentially going to partner with if they're successful in getting a grant from us. The other things that we've done are around data collection and, and refining the kind of categories that we ask people to self-select and say, we work in this area or that area. We at second stage ask about sustainability policies now and see whether people have those in place and it's not a reason that you won't get a grant from us but it's a reason for us to then have a conversation and I think we try and zoom out a little bit so we partnered well we, we provided some core funding to MPC New Philanthropy Capital earlier this year for a program that's now called Everyone's Environment where they're trying to get the social sector to almost build resources and capacity and capability really around how it engages with the climate and nature crises. And so rather than us being like, why don't you have a sustainability policy, which is part of what we're doing, we, we are asking people if they have one, we're exploring why they might not have one. I think we're quite good at zooming out and then saying, okay, and if this is something that the sector is struggling with, what can we invest in that might help them struggle less with it? Uh, we did something similar with a program that we co-funded for 
wildlife and countryside link which did a deep dive into diversity equity and inclusion in the environmental sector so i think sometimes rather than go into the kind of case by case applicant or grant holder by applicant or grant holder we, we try and support initiatives that maybe are supporting the sector more broadly so yeah i think that's just a few of the ways that we we do we, we do that alex i think as we increasingly recognise the complexity of the systems we operate in as charities, often addressing complex social issues and the ongoing changes in the external context, which have been highlighted particularly, I suppose, over the last couple of years with the pandemic. The question is how charities can effectively develop strategies in that context and thinking about whether that sort of traditional five-year plan is becoming obsolete and needing to be replaced with something more dynamic and adaptive but i know you've you've got a really strong background in strategy and some of those some of those roles you've I've written a lot of five-year plans yeah yeah you've done it yeah some 10 year but i have written a lot of five-year plans um okay, yeah uh, yeah, I'm sure you've seen a lot as a funder as well, and, and just kind of knowing the sector as well as you do, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on what charities can do in this context to think about developing and then implementing strategy. Mm. It's a really important question. There is no easy answer. I think there is absolutely a value and credibility in thinking and planning for the long term through strategy drop documents be they kind of on three, five, 10 year, 20 year cycles. I would probably say as my answer to this, something that strikes me is the need to know yourself. So to really understand your own organization, understand what its purpose is, why it exists. And then from that to understand things like how you do the work that you do, what you do well, what you could be doing differently, whether there are things you are doing that you shouldn't be doing uh, because there are others who are better placed to do it. I think in these really complex and uncertain times, there is a real importance and duty that applies to all of us who run charities or similar organisations to really understand who you are, the value that you add, the contribution that you are making, and from there recognize like, is this something that is required? And we alone, I don't think one charity will ever correct or reimagine or transform or create a new system, but together, I think we are better able to create new systems by knowing what we do well now and what we could be doing well for the future that we are moving towards. I do think that the other benefits of strategy is that they allow you to do some really valuable horizon scanning and to give you that space and time to reflect on something that goes beyond the right now and the immediate which is where when we are in volatile and uncertain times we can stay in the immediate and if strategy lets you think forward as well as reflect on what's happened and what's happening that's got to be a benefit um, and I wouldn't want us to lose 
the ability to have time and space to do that. And then I think there's just an element of, as, as part of the kind of horizon scanning is also about the imagining. How do you imagine more and better and alternative possibilities and how you might realize those? And I do think that strategy it forms a really important part of that. So, yeah, I mean, perhaps not a surprise, someone to hear from someone like me who has spent a lot of time creating and implementing strategies to say that I think that there is still a benefit in them. I hope what my answer offers, though, is a reflection that I don't think it's about doing strategy for the sake of it. I think it's doing strategy so that you can really interrogate interrogate and know yourself as an organization and then apply that learning to to the highest possible standards in response to these complexities and difficulties that we face so i i don't think that strategy should be these kind of self-serving self-congratulatory documents i think that they should be these documents that allow us to build and deliver more and better ultimately mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also there's yeah something you said there about the kind of knowing who you are as an organisation and so kind of having that core, the core purpose and values that do stay the same over the 5, 10, 20 year periods, but that the the way you're working, the kind of the tactics and services and so on will constantly be adapting to um, the kind of changing environment and needs. And I think that's, I mean, that's maybe just good good strategy and good practice regardless of the point in time and what's going on externally but I think often what we see with charities developing strategy is that kind of thinking of okay what can we do how can we do more yeah how can we have larger reach more income do more let's increase something by x percentage and 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 the sort of services kind of stay the same so it's almost like back to front in some ways where because it's always the assumption of well we don't want to stop anything that we're doing we need to kind of protect the existing services and then what else can we do how can we do more and i think sometimes there's there's a bit more need for change sometimes and also i think there's something about strategy offers you really solid foundations and that is no bad thing like really understanding you've got a solid bedrock there and there was a framework, I learned lots of frameworks um, over the years, both in my career, but also through the MBA. But there was one from the MBA that I thought was really important. And instead of making, I think sometimes we can feel like strategy is a be all in the end or if we can just get our strategy right, everything else will follow, surely. And the model that we learned, which I, I will just very briefly summarize and I won't do it justice, was called the ESCO model. So the E stood for your environment. So it was about the kind of macro factors, almost like your pestles, if you do those, where you look at political, economic, societal, technological, legal, environmental factors. But the E stood for your environment. So that could be on the macro, but it could also be the micro. So if you're place-based or you, but it's about your environment, not just the environment full stop, because that's the other thing I think I find in strategies. We talk about like, the entire environment and you're like what about your organization's environment that you are trying to grapple with what is the system or the part of the system that you're grappling with so that was the e the s was your strategy which is self-explanatory the c was your capabilities 
So these are your assets, the things that you're good at, and it's the kind of why you element. And the O was your organization. And I thought, and it's called the ESCO model, but people do it in different like ways. And 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 but if you look at those four things together, there is something about lots of people have strategies and haven't thought about capabilities. Do we even have the capabilities to do it? Or they'll be like, we'll just um yeah, we'll we'll figure out a way to start doing this thing. Or they'll write a strategy that doesn't fit their organization. And you're reading the strategy and you are working with the organization and you're like, these are two different things. Or they'll write a strategy that hasn't thought about the operating environment. So there's an element of what I liked about the model is that you do need all four things. And I'm sure there's other things that people listening will think about and and that's great that's no bad thing either but there's just something for me about recognizing that at the very minimum when you are writing a strategy you should be thinking about those four things your environment your strategy your capabilities and your organization yeah absolutely i think as you say there are so many frameworks but they they tend to cover uh, some of the same sort of core ingredients don't they and it's that sort of and strategy should never be done in isolation. I guess that's the point I'm making too. Should be a organization wide and beyond in some cases endeavor. Oh yeah. I guess what the sort of level of external change has highlighted for people recently is the that need for sort of flexibility and adaptability within your strategic framework rather than being like, right, this is the strategic objectives and the KPIs and the activities etc etc kind of planned out for a long period but having that kind of top layer is is kind of clear and then having having that kind of adaptability within that um, which i think we've seen lots of really strong examples of as well there's some really obvious ones during the pandemic but good organizations are always adapting aren't they to the sort of changing needs of the community they serve i realize we're probably running short on time so we'll wrap up shortly I wonder before we do, maybe you could share some thoughts and advice for people who work in the sector, uh, maybe earlier on in their career. If you've got any sort of advice around, I suppose, learning and development, I would I would say more broadly than just kind of career advice. Great. Happy to. Certainly not wanting to offer this as kind of gospel, just reflections, as you say. So I think with early career, just thinking back on what I've done, I think it is important if your organisation does offer commitments around learning and development and you have the time, space and energy to make use of them, then do. I think that sometimes having that kind of formal qualification can act as really solid underpinning and foundations. So, you know, I was fortunate to work in organisations that had things like you could do a QCF or you could do an advanced diploma and it was a good thing I think ultimately to pursue those equally though I would just say that learning and development is a lot broader than those kind of formal qualifications I think that there is much that you can learn from working across an organization working with colleagues across organizations I think sometimes even making dip shifts in your career where you might go from a very large organization to a medium or smaller one 
exposes you to a lot more in different ways. And I think there's something about in your early career, being quite comfortable and open to working across different organisations and using that as kind of data, really, to determine the things that you like and don't like and the things that you want and don't want from the kind of work that you do. Uh, we spend a lot of time at work, 37 and a half hours, 35 hours, whatever it is. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about our work. And so I think it's important to really recognize for yourself what you connect with and what you don't. I would also say that if you know exactly what you want to do and you're able to go on a career path that allows you to pursue that and you've got a clear sense of what the trajectory is around that career path, wonderful. If you're one of those people, perhaps a bit more like me, who don't necessarily know that they have a career path and trajectory with an end goal. Just don't be overwhelmed by that. Recognize that there is a lot of opportunity that can come from that because it allows you to pursue different options in the same way that having a clear career trajectory does. Because if you want to be an accountant or something, and okay, you know how to progress as an accountant, but then you still have variety that comes in the form of the types of organisations that you work in, whether they be big, small, specialist charity in a cause area that you adore or whatever it might be. So I just think that that's important. I do think it's important to reach out to people if you want advice, be that kind of formal mentoring or just kind of informal chats here and there. I think people are always happy to help, actually. And I, I get those types of requests quite regularly, and I'm always pleased to receive them. And equally, people make an offer or take an interest in what you're doing. I think that's often a really positive thing. And so it's worth listening to, well, well taking someone up on that offer and, and hearing what they have to say, as well as using that as an opportunity to talk them through some of the things you've been thinking about. And increasingly, I've noticed that there are lots of different groups and informal places where people gather online and in person. And I think those are worth pursuing as well. So kind of rambled, but I do think it's important to, to follow the formal and the informal and to trust your instincts, seek out people you can trust around you for, for information, advice and guidance. And yeah, hopefully that somewhere in there there might be something helpful <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think so i think as you say there's a there's a lot of things that you can do and consider but there's a, a sort of theme there around that sort of continuous learning and developing and kind of asking yourself the questions of what do i want to be doing what do i want to be doing next and, and those sorts of things Great. Thank you so much for your time, Sfina. It's been a great pleasure as always, really interesting and informative. Before we go, is there anything that you'd particularly like to say to the audience to promote anything or ask anything of people? Um, well, first of all, I do want to say thank you, Alex. I think that these things are really helpful when people take the initiative to create a podcast like this. And so Thank you for doing that. And I really enjoy listening to the podcast. I feel very uh, privileged to be a guest on it. And I hope that I have earned the privilege today. And certainly I've enjoyed this chat. I've got nothing really major to promote. I'm really passionate about supporting the sector and the work that we do. And the sector is in, in the broadest sense of the term. I don't think that just needs to be formal charities. I think lots of other kind of 
uh, entities that exist within that. And I feel really passionate about the work that John Elliman Foundation does. So I've been really pleased to have this opportunity to talk more about myself, but the foundation too. So yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, I look forward to listening to future episodes. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Uh, it's been my pleasure. So thank you for the kind words and thank you for your time again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end. Just one more thing before you go. If you listen to the podcast, I'd love to hear what you think. You can either leave a review on Spotify, Apple, etc. or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter at alexblake underscore K-E-D-A or just drop me an email. For details on all episodes with notes and links to resources, head to our website, kedaconsulting.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care.